Yeah, very good. Excellent. Very good. And uh, Ryan Everybody is... say Termasazen. 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 Okay, great. <laughs> Ryan's a brother from the motherland all the way here from Cape Town. That's right. How are you enjoying England so far? Very good, thank you. Weather? We saw the sun once last week. Okay, great. Yeah, Do you realise it's actually warmer here right now than it is in Cape Town? Great. Look, me, I'm in short sleeves. Absolutely. You could yeah, top up I'm your tan in this weather. Yeah. Brilliant. It really is great to have Ryan with us. Uh, Ryan's a new friend. He's, uh, we spent the weekend together at a conference where Ryan was speaking, and he's so engaging and so enthusiastic about the things of Jesus. It's really great to have him with us this morning. Also comprised as part of the Advanced Global Leadership Team. Um, if you're still not entirely clear on uh, our partnership with Advanced, we've got some booklets on the table back there which explain it in a little bit more detail or you could grab me and speak to me about that after the service. Let me pray for Ryan and then uh, we'll crack on. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this man. I thank you for his gift. I thank you that this is a man who knows you and loves you and is known by you and communicates so clearly and passionately about the things of God, the mission that you have us on. We thank you that you've caught us up in your mission. And Lord, we look to you this morning for inspiration in our hearts as Ryan unpacks your word. In Jesus' name. Thank you. Amen. 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 Brilliant. Well, it's great to be with you, Gateway Church. A privilege to be here. I've known about this church for many years, and now to actually be here and be amongst you is a real privilege. And uh, I really want to commend you guys by way of what God has called you to in this context. And I want to encourage you guys to be faithful to the, the fullness of that. Uh, privilege to get, get to know Matt and Grace and their family over the, the last few years, and we've become real friends. And I want to thank you guys as a church for your underwriting of their gifts being sent into nations of the world to serve beyond yourselves. You're a generous people, even through the way you send and strengthen other churches. And so it's my kind of privilege to commend you guys on the front end this morning for standing shoulder to shoulder with the rest of the church around the world and being part of God's great commission to see the very ends of the earth reached. And you guys are shareholders in that in many ways. Now, as it's been said, my surname is Termasazen. I have no reason other than this moment to understand why God would have given me such a complex, long Dutch surname. But you know what it means? Star means star. Mors means mess. Hazen means little house. Little mess house under the stars. Or outhouse under the stars <laughs> is what my surname means. But enough about me. I'm excited this morning to share with you guys, and as has been said, we are we're doing a giving day today, and that's not necessarily any preacher's first choice subject, is it? But I want to ask you a question at the front end, and then we're going to dive in. What is your picture of the good life? What is your picture of the good life? When you dream of what a perfect life would look like, what do you see? What do you feel? Who is around you? What are you experiencing? I think for many of us, when we picture the good life, it's a picture painted with the colors of a peaceful world around us, relational harmony with those that mean most to us, wealth, privilege, deep internal feelings of contentment and joy, maybe a little bit of fame in a specific field or success in an area. Definitely quite a bit of fun and pleasure, right? Think for a moment. What is your picture of the good life? Surely if we had all of those things I've just been mentioning there, surely if our picture was painted with the bright strokes of those kinds of things, that would be the good life for us. What would you add to the list this morning? 
in your picture of the good life. Whenever I think about this, I think about a good friend of mine. His name's Dylan. And he, he is a good friend, but I, I always think of him because he had the ability to just, he has the ability to squeeze juice out of life's moments. What do I mean by that? He, he and I developed this little thing. Whenever we were living it, he would do this thing with his hands where he would say, touch it, feel it, this is it, this is what we dream of, this is what we talk about. And Dylan used to do this, and I remember a moment where we were up in a winter's night, and there was a fire, and we were up in a cabin in the forest with some very close friends, and we were huddled around the fire, and we were telling stories, and we were all laughing, and Dylan paused, and he went, stop, and we all were quiet, and he went, feel it, touch it, this is it. These are those moments that we only dream of having. This is us living the good life. Another time I remember him and I, he, he does stand-up paddle boarding, and uh, he was trying to get me into it, and we were in Musenberg, which is a beautiful beach, and the mountains are in the background, and it was a beautiful sunny day, and the, the water was crystal clear, and as we busy paddling on our stand-up paddle boards, he drops one hand off his paddle, and he holds it in his other hands, and he goes, can you feel it? This is it. These are the moments we dream of. More recently, they, they moved out of Cape Town to a little seaside village called Nasna, and they moved into a house. The first time they'd ever purchased a home of their own, they didn't even have money for furniture, and we came to visit them, and we were all sitting having a picnic inside their home on their carpeted lounge floor, and as the kids are running around and we're having this picnic there, he looks at me, he doesn't even say a word, he just goes, and I knew exactly what he meant. He'd been dreaming of this day. He'd been dreaming of a day when he would have a home he could call his own and his kids would be running around him and his friends, good friends, would be nearby. That was a picture of the good life and he was experiencing it. Why do I start there? I start there because when it comes to speaking about generosity and financial freedom, I start there because often this is a subject that is very difficult not for preachers as much as it is for hearers. Why is it a difficult subject? Well, I believe the church has got speaking about money very wrong in very many contexts over very many years, using manipulation and guilt and condemnation. And many people have used or had ill motives when it comes to speaking about generosity in the context of the church. But more than that, I believe the number one reason that it's hard to speak about money and financial generosity in the context of the life, uh, in the context of the church is because we all get nervous because financial resources are the number one enablers in us possibly being able to get a slice of the good life. And whenever we speak about this, we all get a little nervous around that because if your picture of the good life is comfort, Money can buy that. If your picture of the good life is success, money is part of that. If your picture of the good life is safety and pleasure, money can play a part in that. So when someone starts to talk about all of this, we start to get nervous around what this could mean for us. And this morning, I'm starting here because I want to point out that really, in my heart of hearts, I believe that we are speaking about this as an issue today because about what God wants for you. This is what it's about. If you look on that slide, if we can put up the title slide again, you'll see what I put on the, 
title slide, what God wants for you, not from you. Because God loves us most, and He knows us best. Put those two things together for a moment. The one who knows us best and loves us most, if He says, this is what I have for you, surely it's the very best for us. He loves us most. He knows us best. This is what he wants. This is about what he wants for us, not from us. Let me give you four other reasons that I believe it's good for us in the context of the church to speak about financial stewardship. Firstly, because this is a discipleship issue. Whether you realize it or not, there are thousands of voices that every day aim to shape your understanding of financial stewardship every single day. Thousands of voices that say, this is what life should look like. This is what you should do with your resources. So many voices, marketing and advertising and pressure from friends and families, the, the pressure to keep up with the Joneses. All of these voices are trying to disciple our lives and our wallets in the area of our resources. We're being formed by these voices and the culture around us. And as disciples of Jesus, it's important that we understand and experience Christ's and Scripture's counterformation on these issues. God's Word brings this counterformation to us. Jesus says He wants us to be free from every entanglement. And so He brings us into a greater understanding of His desire for us on these issues. We're going to get to our text in a moment. A second reason is I want to talk to you about this because it's a contentment issue. It's a contentment issue. I'm guessing that we all want to live in true contentment, right? Contentment is the ability to enjoy what we have, to find joy in the little things that God has brought to us and given us. One day at a time, not always living with a sense of lack or hunger or desperation or drive for more in our lives. That sounds great to us, doesn't it? We would all love that. But often that's not the world we live in. One person said that it's the aim of marketing to steal your contentment away from you and sell it back to you at the price of a product. Have you heard about that? Imagine you're walking, you're walking down the street and you've got jeans on and they adequate jeans. But as you walk past the shop, you see these amazing jeans. And in that moment, your contentment leaves you. Why? Because you think to yourself, oh, life would be as it should be if I only had those jeans. An immediate discontentment settles into your life and you can buy back that contentment and have the jeans all for the price of $29.99 right now, no batteries included, right? Contentment is stolen away from us and sold back to us at the price of a product. In that moment, that happens. Recently, I, a little while back actually, I came across a study on contentment. It was conducted all around the world. And they found two things that were very much the same, no matter where you found yourself, by way of socioeconomic standing or geography around the world. All people around the world felt like they needed just a little bit more than they had to be content. Almost 100% of people felt like they needed more if they were to live in true contentment. Guess how much more they felt like they needed. Almost all people, no matter what their geography or their social economic standing, felt that they needed just 10% more to be content. What does that tell you? I'll tell you what it tells me. It tells me that's crazy. 
That means that contentment has got absolutely nothing to do with how much you have. Contentment has got all to do with your attitude, your approach, and your perspective on these things. Jesus is the one who wants to fight for our contentment. Jesus is the one who wants to see us live free from every entanglement. He wants to see us living in the fullness of what he has for us and what he's called us to. He fights for us. Thirdly, I believe this is important to speak about because the Bible has got some great things to say about this. In fact, Jesus spoke about money a whole lot. Did you know that 16 out of the 38 uh, parables that Jesus spoke about were about money and possessions? The Bible offers us roughly 500 verses on prayer, a little bit less than that, just a little bit less on faith, but over 2,500 verses when it comes to verses on money and possessions. And it seems that Jesus thought it was important to speak about these things, and so we as the church should see it as important too. He wants to counterform our hearts in the context of the the, the formation that we receive in our culture. And here's my last reason. The last reason that I think it's important is because I believe that this church will live in more of what God wants her to be when you guys settle these issues in your own hearts and lives. God has got great plans for this church to be used in this area, in this city, in this region, and I believe in nations of the world's but it will take a group of people settling these issues in their hearts, living counterculturally, living wisely, living sacrificially, living generously to see God's full kingdom purpose lived out through Gateway Church. In fact, one of the most catalytic moments in our church was many years ago, I was about uh, 17 years ago, I joined our church. There were about 250 people in the church at the time. And a Sunday soon after that, I remember someone speaking into this, and a crazy thing happened in our church, and it was catalytic in so many ways. A disproportionate amount of people in our community said that we commit to every month regularly being part of this taking care of the needs of our community and setting us on mission. And then some people who had the Romans 12 gift of giving did what scripture calls them to do. They gave generously. And a few people stepped forward and said, we want to start missional seed bags in the area of ministry, mercy, and missions. And we started these three funds, ministry, mercy, and missions. And people gave disproportionately to those things. And it catalyzed our church to fight above our weight category when it came to being a force for good in our city. And I trust and I hope that Gateway Church would live in something of that. That every person will say, hey, I'll be a part of playing my part. But those who've been, as I like to call it, afflicted with wealth, would consider themselves graced by God to be a part of His army that is doing fantastic things in the world. So I've spoken about why we should speak about this. Now let's speak about this. Turn in your Bibles with me. We're going to turn to Luke 16. We're going to work through 14 verses, verse by verse. Jesus is speaking. And two chaps, Andy Stanley and Tim Keller, have helped me when it's come to grappling with this text, getting to grips with it. But Jesus is speaking here. He's been speaking to the crowds. He's been speaking to his disciples. And, and what he's speaking to them about is he's been using these parables to teach them. And he's been speaking about a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son. 
And then he continues. There's also these Pharisees, these Jewish noblemen amongst them. And Jesus wants to speak to them too. And so he continues his stories to his disciples, but loud enough that he's an earshot of them and they lean in. Luke 16 verse 1, it says, Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Now in the day and age, none of the disciples would have actually gone, oh, I totally can see myself uh, as a rich man. But who would have seen themselves kind of leaning in, having managers? The Pharisees, right? The Pharisees would have gone, I can identify with the rich man who's got a manager. And so immediately Jesus, the great storyteller, would have had their attention in that moment. Verse 2, Jesus continues. So he called him and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account for your management before, because you cannot be manager any longer. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, what should I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. What's happening in this situation? The manager has misappropriated the funds. He has been the steward and he's misappropriated the funds. And the owner arrives home and says to him, give an account. He's CEO and he's CFO of the business and he needs to bring his spreadsheets and he needs to account for what's been going wrong. But he realizes he's got this notice period. This period between now and when he no longer is a steward of those resources. And he thinks to himself, what can I do? What can I do? And he comes up with a plan. Verse 4, I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. And he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? Verse 6, 900 gallons of oil. Sounds like a lot of oil. Big debt. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Chop it in half. Come on. Imagine you the boss, and this is your manager. How are you feeling about this guy? Cannot believe it, right? Can you imagine the situation? 900 gallons of debt, oil, olive oil debt. And in a moment, this manager just goes and writes off half of it. You can also imagine the, the guy who owes the debt going, wow, thank you, that's amazing. If there's any way I can ever repay you, you just let me know. And the manager thinks, ha ha, got him now. Verse seven, then he asks the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. Unfortunately, he didn't like this guy as much. He says, he told him, take your bill and make it 800, 20% of his debt off the top. Again, you can imagine that guy going, wow, that's amazing. Thank you. If I can ever repay you, just let me know. Now, before we continue, let's just think about the story for a moment. If you were the owner, how are you feeling about this manager right now? If you had to find out, I know I'm thinking this guy is a terrible manager. Not only has he misappropriated the funds, not only has he been cooking the books, now when he gets his notice period and he's going to be out of here, he takes that and uses the resources for his own gain rather than trying to sort things out and make up for his mistakes. How dare this guy just do that? 
benefit himself with the resources he's been given to steward, right? Don't think that too quickly. It's a trap. Who are we dealing with here? We're dealing with Jesus, the master storyteller. How many times have we seen this happen before? He reels you in until he's got you right here, and then he realizes, and he delivers the kind of sucker punch to the stomach. When you go, oh, he's talking about me, right? How dare we, stewards of someone else's resources, use them for our personal benefit and not for what they have been intended. Jesus is calling us in. Jesus is suggesting as we consider our lives, is there a notice period dynamic in our lives too? Do we know of a moment that's coming where we will no longer be the stewards of the resources of heaven? The story takes a twisty turn because as we feeling so strongly against this manager, listen to what Jesus says to them. Verse 8, the master commended, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Did he commend him for his dishonesty? No. He commended him for his shrewdness. Now, I'll be honest. When I think of the word shrewdness, I'm like Scrooge McDuck, right? The person who's kind of squirreling all the money away for himself, that kind of thing. But listen to these words. In the dictionary, shrewdly is, synonyms for shrewdly are astutely, sharply, smartly, perceptively, discerningly, insightfully, wisely, cleverly. Jesus is commending this manager for how he used the resources in that moment in a clever way. None of us saw that coming, right? What is Jesus on about here? See, the master commended him because he had spotted the gap to use the little bit of time and the little bit of opportunity and resources that he still had in his notice period to make decisions that would benefit the future reality in his life. Can you imagine the audience's response in this moment? I'm sure some of them are thinking Jesus is crazy. They're a little bit dumbfounded by this story. Why would the owner commend this dishonest manager just like that? They're thinking to themselves, wow, this this owner must also be very rich, right? Because he wasn't even worried about the money. He wasn't even worried about the 200 bushels of wheat and the 500 or 450 liters of olive oil. He obviously, as an owner, had more than he needed. Jesus is suggesting that we think about how we are being stewards of the time and the opportunity and the resources that we have been given to make an eternal impact. He wants us to see that he views money as just a small thing. Ultimately, he is looking at the heart, the perception of us as his stewards. How are we viewing these things? He's less worried about the resources, more worried about our perception of these things. At this point, the parable finishes, but Jesus doesn't leave it there. Jesus turns to the Pharisees, and he now stares into their souls, and he has a few things to say to them. Let's listen and learn from Jesus together. Verse 8, he continues, For the people of this world are more shrewd 
or astute or sharp or smart in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Now, I'll be honest, I did not know what that sentence meant first time I read it. But I went and looked into it. And, and what is Jesus getting at here? Jesus is saying people who only live for the here and now are way more inclined to really try and get it right in the here and now. People who live for a future reality, heaven is coming, it's going to be paradise, they may tend to be a little more sloppy on the here and now because they're just waiting for the eternal promotion. They just kind of like, well, it doesn't really matter now because one day we're going to be in heaven. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying those who only live for the here and now, they work smartly. And he's calling us to also be those who work smartly with the here and now. Even though the eternal paradise, the upgrade of our lives is on its way, it is a future reality certain for all of us who have placed our faith in Christ Jesus. He's saying that shouldn't make us any more sloppy in the here and now. And Jesus continues to make his point, and he teaches us. Verse 9, he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Is he saying throw lots of parties at home and have friends over? That's not his point. And Jesus in this verse seems to suggest that there are two different types of wealth. Worldly wealth and a different type of wealth. Maybe a heavenly wealth. And the bigger point of what he is saying is that in these verses, we should use whatever resources and stewardship we have been given to be the kinds of people that when we arrive in heaven, there will be people applauding our efforts. Thank you. Thank you, Gateway Church. You guys have been fantastic in the way that you have sent teams to other regions and other nations, other worlds. Thank you for the impact that has made in the gospel in the worlds. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying that we should use what we have in this life in such a way that when we find ourselves passing on to the next reality, there'll be people celebrating and appreciating our efforts. Jesus says we need to have an eternal view on our stewardship of resources. And that's the first big thing. I'm going to be pulling four points. And because I'm a preacher, I'm going to start them all with T, okay? So the first thing is this. Jesus is saying that financial stewardship is a tool for a task. It's a tool for a task. Financial stewardship is a tool for a heavenly task, which should lead us to ask the obvious question, how am I using the tool of my financial resources for God and His purposes? How am I doing in that area? I know for me, from the moment I became a Christ follower, and I don't say this to blow my own trumpet, I say this because I'm so certain about how much I believe this stuff. From the very first paycheck I ever received, I committed myself to giving 10% of that towards God and His kingdom and His purpose. Not a month has gone by where I've missed that. And once or twice a year in our church, they have giving days like you guys are giving. And I have every single time given something to that. Sometimes it's been very, very little. Sometimes it has been stretching and sacrificially much. But every time I've settled it in my heart that I will be a part of responding to those kinds of calls. Because I believe this is not about what God wants from me. I believe that this is about what God wants for me. And when we see it differently, and again, I don't say that by way of look to me. No, I say that by way of, I believe this stuff. I live it. This is not a, you know, do as I say, not do as I do. This is, this is a do as I do, do as I say thing. 
I believe this is in God's kingdom economy for all of us. Sometimes when we give, it'll be more of a stretch. Sometimes when we give, it'll be more of a joy. Let's continue. Verse 10. Jesus continues to teach us on this, and he says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So the point that Jesus is making is anybody who is untrustworthy, even in the little things, likely they're just going to continue that untrustworthiness into bigger things. Jesus is calling us to a trustworthiness as stewards. Let's be trustworthy of the stewardship he's given us. He continues in verse 11. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Jesus is saying, not only is your money and wealth a tool for his task, his heavenly task, it's also a test. It's also a test. Our financial stewardship is a test. God is watching and he's looking to how we handle our resources, all those things that he has placed in our hands to be stewards of. And he says, it's all on loan. It all belongs to him anyway. I'm not sure about you guys, but nobody's ever arrived in this world with anything and nobody's ever left this world with anything. It's all a stewardship dynamic. And so God is asking us to pass the test. He's encouraging us. How will we respond? No matter whether we have little or much, it's not about the amount. Remember, it's about the heart. Jesus continues into the well-known verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Sometimes we set it up as like God and the devil. Jesus in this moment goes, no, no, it's actually God and money are the two opposing kind of options here. Why does he say that? It seems that he knows that the greatest competitor for our affections and our loves is worldly resources because security and comfort and pleasure and all of the slices of the good life that we would want for our lives can largely be attained through this thing called money. So Jesus says, we've got to watch out for it. We've got to be aware of it. It's the primary enabler of the good life. And so it's hard hitting. Jesus is being direct here with us. Why is he being direct? Why is he going so strong? Well, I believe Jesus is once again the one who is ultimately fighting for our freedom in this moment. Because it's easy for us to resist the devil. When you see true evil and darkness coming in on your life, you resist it, right? We don't see those sneaky tentacles of consumerism wrapping themselves around our lives. Way harder to resist what we don't see coming. And Jesus is going hard after us here because he wants to call us again to live in the freedom. He's fighting for the freedom that he desires to see all of us living in. God says it's a tool for a heavenly task. Resources are also a test. The third thing, the third T of this is Jesus also says that money is a trademark, a trademark of being a true Christ follower, a trademark. He says this, you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Be devoted to the one and despise the other. When your family and friends look at your life as a Christ follower 
and they say, oh, wow, you don't drive that car. Why don't you drive that car? Well, I could drive that car, but actually I'm getting behind kingdom resources with a portion of my money every month, and I'm getting behind what we're doing through mission, through our local church, and what do people say? They realize that's a trademark to your life. You are a true Christ follower. What's the last thing to be discipled in our lives, if we're honest? Our wallets. Did you know that your wallet needs discipleship? I've figured this out. My wallet is the hardest part of me to disciple. And when people see that your wallets have been discipled, that is a trademark to your truly being a Christ follower. That is a trademark. When, when my kids, I've got three kids, I've got two girls and I've got an adopted son, and they are nine, seven, and five. And when they look at my bank account, bank statements, I want them to look at that and go, I can see evidence of you following and living out what you say you believe. Why is it the rest of my life has that evidence? It should be required and shown and displayed in every area of our lives. This is a trademark for our lives. My uncle once tried to offer me a job. He's not a Christ follower. And he found out what I earned at church. And he said to me, Ryan, I will triple your salary if you come and work for me. And I looked him right in the eyes and I said to him, but that would be the complete wrong motivation angle to take. This is not about the money for me. This is about a sense of call. And at that moment, he was like, I don't get it. But I'll tell you what, at that moment, there was a trademark of my Christ following that was displayed to him in that moment. What is the trademark of your Christ following? Does your wallet speak a message and witness to others? So how do we respond? How do we respond to a talk like this? Well, there's one more tea of stewardship that we can glean out of this passage, and it's found in the response of the Pharisees to what Jesus had to say. And my hope is that we, Gateway Church, you guys sitting here today, that you don't respond like the Pharisees did. I know it's the tendency of our natural kind of bent. It's the tendency of our hearts. It says in verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money, they heard all of this and they were sneering at Jesus. Some of you may feel a sneer in your heart to me right now. I don't know why, I'm just trying to represent Scripture, and I have absolutely no personal motivation in telling you all of this. To be frank, I would have far preferred to preach something else. But as I was chatting it through with Matt this week, I felt that God just said, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to do. Those who are sneering at Jesus, he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What's their response? Sneer. And Jesus, and they reject his teaching. And he says, these guys are going to justify their bad stewardship in the eyes of others. Maybe he knows that later they're going to say things like, well, you know, I would like to steward my money better, but I've got all of these other things going on, which I can't do right now. I can't be a part of that. So maybe they would point to other things that they've done historically and say, yeah, last time we did this, I was really generous. Jesus knows they're going to try and justify themselves. And I don't say this by way of manipulation. I'm just representing the text. Jesus says to them, and I believe he would say to us today too, don't be so good at talking yourselves out of doing good, out of stewardship and generosity, because do not be deceived. Jesus knows. God knows your hearts. And that's the the fourth T. Stewardship, like it or not, is a thermometer to our hearts. 
a thermometer to our hearts. It will quite accurately give you a read on the condition of your heart towards God and His purposes. If you are being joyfully generous, as Scripture calls you to, it tells you something about your heart and love for God. If you are being sour and stingy, that too tells you something about your heart. Jesus is saying, this is a heart issue. And guess what? I know it's still true today. You know why I know that? Because rich people aren't generous. And poor people aren't generous. Generous people are generous. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Financial stewardship is a tool for a task. It's a test of our faithfulness. It's a trademark of our witness. And it's a thermometer for reading the temperature of our hearts. As I bring this into land, I'm hoping that we would find ourselves as Christ followers responding to the King of Heaven as good financial stewards. I don't know how many people will get to the end of their lives and go, man, I wish I was a little more kind of stingy about these things. I'm so sad about being a good financial steward. And I know already I've missed moments where where I look back and I go, I wish I'd been a little better in that. There's moments where I go, man, I wish I'd done better in these things. Let me tell you a story just to bring this into land and hopefully correct any ill kind of direction in our hearts here. I grew up in South Africa, and I'd moved from America when I was 10 into a small Afrikaans farming village, farming a grape farming area in the Boerlands of the Cape, finest wine in the world. And a friend of mine came into, once a quarter we would have these things, they were called a soki dance, which pretty much means a country dance. And once a quarter we would have these at the high, in the high school hall, and a friend of mine was the captain of the first team rugby team. And his name was Ati. Ati's a good Afrikaans name. And Ati came into the bathroom, and I was a junior. I was in, in grade 8 at the time, so I was about 14, and he was about 18. And Ati came into the bathroom, and he, and he said to me, Hey, Ryan, why aren't you dancing? And I said, No, man, this dancing thing looks stupid. You guys do this little chemise and little, you know, it's altogether very country in my mind. And he said to me, No, man, you must learn how to dance. Do you know how to dance? And I said, No, I don't want to learn how to dance. And then he said words that changed the game for me. He said, I'll get Liesl to teach you. Now, Liesl was Miss Huguenot. She was the most beautiful girl in the school. And she was dating him, and he was the captain of the rugby team. Very kind of stereotypical scenario, right? And anyway, Atsy and Liesl, Atsy took me to Liesl, and I was in. I was like, yeah, if Liesl's going to teach me, I'll learn how to dance, definitely. And so I get there to Liesl, and Liesl, the most beautiful girl in the room, and my knees are knocking a little bit, and she says to me, okay, Ryan, this is what you got to do. You put your hand here, and you put your hand in my hand, and you put your other hand here on my waist, at which point I almost fainted. But, <laughs> and then she said, you take these steps, and you take these steps, and you do this, and you do this, and then we started to dance. But what happened? Immediately as we started to dance, I've got my head down. I'm staring at my feet. Do this. Take this step. Don't take this step. Oh, ah, oh, ah. And after about three minutes of trying to do this, Liesl actually stopped. She said, Ryan, you're stepping all over my toes. All I'm doing is staring at the top of your head. This is no fun. We're not dancing. And then she said words that a 13, 14-year-old boy will never forget. She said, Ryan, what you've got to do is just relax. Look into my eyes. 
hear the music. Feel my body against your body. And let's dance. And so we did. And I was the hero of my grade for at least the weekend, right? <laughs> but why do I tell you this story? Because some of you are going to be inclined to be Ryan the Learner Dancer. Some of you are going to say, I've got to do this, and I mustn't do this, and the preacher said, don't do this, and do this, and we are going to give ourselves over to dead religion, and we have got the living king of heaven wanting to dance with us. We have the glorious music of the gospel to fill our ears. The one who gave everything for us is wanting to stare us in the eyes and say, be a part of the dance. I am on mission in the world. I have great plans and purposes, and somehow in the craziness of it all, I have linked myself to human instrumentality to see my purposes fulfilled. And Jesus, today, even on issues of financial stewardship, doesn't invite us into dead religion and doing this because it's the right thing to do or not doing this. He invites us into the dance. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I know that these are weighty issues. I know, God, that you have called us to be those who recognize that we are stewards here today in this room. Sons and daughters of the Most High God, we are stewards of your resources. We are those who have been given so that we can live in the Genesis 12 Abrahamic covenant, blessed to be a blessing. God, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, pour out anointing upon Gateway Church to be disproportionately effective and generous as they give, disproportionately effective in, in the multiplication of their resources into kingdom good. Won't you, Jesus, allow them to live in a greater fullness, in a greater joy, in a greater sense of mission? May they be a true force for good in their town, in their city, in their region, and even into the nations of the world, God. I thank you for the power and the privilege of partnership, that a preacher from the tip of Africa can come over here and represent your word, because we are friends, and we are looking to you, our, our one heavenly Father that loves us, that guides us, that leads us in every single area of our lives. Father, for those who might be wrestling or struggling here this morning, I know these are wrestles and struggles that I myself have experienced. God, won't you just speak and minister to their hearts your fatherly love and affection. There is nothing they can do or not do that would separate them from your love and affection. But God, you welcome us into the dance, the dance of your mission, the dance of your people, the dance of your gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.